Hello and welcome to episode number 191 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow along on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. In this episode, we hear from Paul Levine, director of Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies and the author, along with Baha Basar, of Migration from Turkey to Sweden, Integration, Belonging and Transnational Community, published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Including the children and grandchildren of first-generation migrants, the number of Swedes with their origins in Turkey today far exceeds 100,000. In this conversation, we talk about the demographic profile of that population, the shifting power dynamics of Turkish and Kurdish communities within Sweden, and how all this fits into the recent imbroglio over Sweden's NATO membership bid, which, of course, Turkey has still yet to ratify, saying it wants more quote-unquote anti-terror cooperation, including the extradition of over 100 wanted suspects before it gives that green light. Before we get started, please remember that this podcast takes a lot of time, effort and elbow grease to put together and I need listeners' support, your support, in order to keep doing it. As I mentioned at the start of the previous episode with Maureen Freely, listenership does continue to rise all the time, which is very pleasing indeed. But for a while now, membership has been going in the opposite direction, going down. We launched the podcast back in September 2015, and since then we've published almost 200 episodes, giving a platform to researchers and authors of books on all kinds of themes related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature, the arts. I love putting the podcast together. It's incredibly rewarding, and I hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. The podcast is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. And indeed, that includes the book that we're talking about in this episode. It's just one of hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury, which are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout, and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders, or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation-proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on to our conversation with Paul Levine. 
The first official agreements between Turkey and Sweden on labour migration were signed in 1967, which saw the first labourers from Turkey moving to Sweden to work. I started by asking what was behind that agreement and who travelled from Turkey in that first wave. The broad historical context is that Sweden you know, stayed neutral during World War II and Swedish industry uh, benefited from uh, helping to rebuild countries and cities across Europe. And for that, we, we needed uh, labor. We first imported labor from neighboring countries, including Finland, and then later reached out to Yugoslavia, Greece, and Turkey in the, the mid to late 1960s. It was sort of an organized campaign where Swedish companies uh, went to uh, locations in Turkey and tried to recruit people from there. Why it turned out that they ended up in a small town in called Kulu in Konya, I don't know. But that is where most of the, the migrants, labor migrants from, from Turkey came. So we have a very a, a significant population of, of Kulu residents uh, or former Kulu residents in Sweden. And that group was both Turkish and, and Kurdish. Uh, I believe that many of the Kurds came, came from uh, Jihan Bayli, a district in Kulu. And, you know, we're not talking huge numbers. If you look at the numbers of, of people in Sweden who were born in Turkey, in 1970, Statistics Sweden reports that it was less than 4,000 people, but it, it, it grew over time. Swedish labor then complained and felt that this was un, unfair competition on the labor market. So the official drive to recruit was closed down in the 70s, I believe, in the aftermath of the, the oil crisis. But uh, migration continued. Uh, it was both continued uh, labor migration and also then family reunification. And then there's this, an additional component, and that is the political dimension. After uh, the military coup, uh, the military intervention in 1971, and there were people who came, fled to Sweden, uh, and uh, same thing after the coup in 1980, and also during the, the fighting with the PKK, Kurds from other regions of the country fled to Sweden. And then also many Assyrians, Suriani, came to Sweden. So, so you have a divided diaspora in, in Sweden uh, due to these different reasons for migrating. And we can come on to the political divides a bit later in the conversation. But in that initial first wave, struck me as I was reading the book that it was quite a similar trajectory, really, to the situation that we see in a number of other European countries the obvious case that we might mention is Germany, actually, because obviously the first wave of Turkish migrants to Germany were also labour migrants, but obviously it was on a much larger scale. Is that a you know fair comparison? Obviously, you know, in later decades as well, Germany experienced a similar shift where later on, you know, more political migrants came, but initially it was that labour deal in the 60s. Yeah, I, I think that's fair uh, for similar reasons. And there's also an, an interesting sort of gender dimension that, that labor mi migrants tended to be men. And then a few years later, women uh, followed their wives or they uh, married somebody and typically from, from Kulu. So I think you have a, a rather similar trajectory. In Sweden, I think the political sort of asylum seekers came to be more important than in Germany. In, in Germany, the, the labor migrants uh, really dominate. I wouldn't say that that is the case here in, in Sweden. 
And you mentioned before this political divide into two broad camps of Turkish origin migrants and Kurdish origin migrants. Could you just talk a bit about that, you know, how that first developed? Was it there from the start? And what were the practical implications of that on the ground in subsequent decades? I think that it has become more pronounced. That is my sense. In the early years, migrants, uh, whether they were labor migrants or, or political refugees coming from Turkey, would you know organize in associations, and the associations were sort of incorporated into a very strong, vivid Swedish civil society, where you had a number of, of independent associations that were sort of part of this social democratic vision of Sweden at that time. And I think that that went for, for both labor migrants and people who had come seeking asylum. Over time, that situation has changed somewhat. And uh, some of these uh, associations, especially the ones that did not have a strong political dimension, such as Kurdish-oriented organizations, the other ones have, have sort of lost some of their vigor. And the largest Turkish one, the, the Turkish National Association, which was the largest one organizing Turkish origin migrants, they have, uh, the organization has actually gone bankrupt and is now defunct. And there were a number of problems with it. But the diaspora community in Sweden, it's quite complex because you have labor migrants who are not particularly politically active and who are both Turks and Kurds. You have political uh, or asylum seekers who have uh, fled political repression who are predominantly Kurdish, but also Turks, left-wing Turks primarily, who fled the coups in 1971 and, and especially 1980. And then you have the Syrians, Syriani, who also fled massacres and, and other things, uh, other forms of repression in, in Turkey. So, for example, if you look at the Kurdish community, there are some Kurds as in Turkey, especially Kurds perhaps who come from Kulu, who came as labor migrants, don't tend to be very politically active. If anything, they may support the AKP. And um, and you have other Kurds who are organized politically. Uh, and some of them are, are sort of within the broader PKK or KCK type of associations. We had a, a postdoctoral scholar at, at the Institute uh, a few years back, and uh, she wrote her doctoral thesis comparing the Turkish-Kurdish communities in Germany and, and Sweden. And uh, what she found back then was that the Turkish-Kurdish communities in Germany had you know, greater integration uh, between the two, but there was also more conflict, sometimes violent conflict. Whereas in Sweden, uh, at least the politically active Kurdish communities and, and, and the Turkish diaspora community tended to live more separate lives. But there was also less, uh, fewer instances of uh, conflict between the two. Since she published that book, however, that situation has changed somewhat. And in, 19, in 2015 and 2016, we did have some violent interactions with, with one shooting and a number of, of explosive devices targeting community associations, both Kurdish and Turkish. Uh, so that's a situation that sort of has, has changed in recent years and it partly, I think, reflects the polarization in Turkey but it also might reflect greater availability of weapons in Sweden as well, as we have separate issues of, of organized and violent crime here now. But 
the power relations between the Turkish and the Kurdish communities in Sweden are almost the reverse of the relationship in Turkey. So in Sweden, even though the communities may be roughly the same size, it's hard to tell because Sweden doesn't really have statistics on, on those matters. The Kurdish community has by and large been more successful in terms of uh, having an influence and uh, getting their sort of narrative across. And you have more elites, you know, whether in sports or in various culture sectors, uh, you have uh, famous comedians, and you also have journalists and general opinion makers, and then also presence in, in uh, various political parties uh, on the left, social democrats, uh, and in the liberal party. I mean, it's kind of illustrated nicely with the fact that the Kurdish community here not only have a Kurdish library, there are you know, viable Kurdish associations, they also have a Kurdish radio channel on Swedish public radio. So there's one entire channel in Kurdish, whereas there was one radio program on Swedish radio, not a channel, but a, one single program called Mehaba in Turkish, and that was closed down. So that's sort of a, you know an illustration. And and I mean, it has Sweden has been very important for the Kurdish community in many ways. Swedish financing of civil society organizations has been important. There has been a Kurdish library since I think 1997. Several publishing presses, uh, and you, I think you've had many more books published in Kurdish in Sweden than you have had in Turkey. At least that was the case for many years. And then on the other hand, the, the Turkish community in Sweden, you know, mainly mainly consists of labor migrants who have not been very politically active. There have been some Turkish origin Swedish politicians, but several of them have had to resign in scandals uh, having to do with ties to the Ulkojakler, the, the Grey Wolves, a militant right-wing organization or connected to, to the MHP Nationalist Party, or you know allegations of anti-Semitism and ties to sort of conservative you know, religious groups in, in Turkey. And, and so the Turkish story in Sweden, unfortunately, is not really a success story of integration, I would say. So you say there that this divide in previous years saw some social unrest and street clashes between different groups of politicized uh, migrant origin communities, Turkish and Kurdish. Has that been the case with the latest tension? We've obviously seen from Turkey, you know, footage of various protests on both sides uh, in Stockholm, for example. Have those two groups clashed directly? So no, we have not seen Turkish-Kurdish violence, if you will, recently. Uh, the last incidents were 2015 and, and 16, and uh, and I and some other associations and the Swedish police contributed to to sort of trying to to mediate and have have dialogue between representatives of the different communities, and hopefully that may have had some effect. But what we've seen in recent years is another group who has arrived in Sweden, and that is uh, people seeking asylum who have been accused of being members of the Gulen movement. And there are a number of people who have been quite prominent in the Gulen movement. Some of them have lately distanced themselves from the movement. But there have been several instances in which they have been targeted and assaulted on the street. We've also seen newspapers like Sabah, for example, covering some of these individuals and and including you know where they live and and, and so on. So there's been been some some uh, beatings, uh, quite serious. One of them, a journalist, was beaten quite severely in front of his two year old daughter. Uh, another one in front of his home. Uh, 
so I think that that would be the the most recent case. Um, there have also been some incidents involving uh, the PKK recently, but not really uh, sort of an ethnic Turkish Kurdish uh, violent in that case. Now, turning more to this latest tension, it must have been a surprise for you, you know, as a specialist on what is essentially quite a marginal issue like Turkish politics to suddenly be thrown into the spotlight in Sweden of this very public debate, major issue of NATO membership and Turkey's objection, this whole imbroglio that's developed around that in recent months. I mean, how surprising was it? Were you expecting this in any way or were you suddenly kind of thrust into this strange situation where suddenly people were consulting you when they'd previously not done so? Yeah, no, it's been it's been quite intense. I, I have to say, there have been a lot of lot of people, you know, asking for somebody who knows both Sweden and Turkey, and there aren't that many of us yeah. <laughs> with that sort of particular intersection of knowledge. But yeah, I mean, on the one hand, this is not something that Turkey has has uh, has never done before, right? There's the 2009 incident where Turkey, uh, for a t- for a while, Erdogan blocked the appointment of former Danish Prime Minister Anders Fogh Rasmussen to secretary, the post of Secretary General uh, in NATO. And their complaint was that he had uh, handled mishandled the Muhammad caricature crisis, if you if you remember, a few years earlier. And that was eventually resolved. But then Turkey did the same thing or a similar thing 10 years later in 2019 when they blocked uh, plans for uh, what's called a graduated response plan, uh, essentially defense planning for the Baltic states and Poland. And uh, at that time, uh, the issue was uh, Turkey wanting recognition of the Syrian Kurdish militia, YPG and, and, and the party PYD recognized as terrorist organizations. So, I mean, there were, there were precedents, right? And those of us who follow Turkish foreign policy are aware that it has become much more sort of assertive, sometimes perhaps belligerent, and that it is also increasingly transactional. So if Turkey has leverage, it tends to use it. So we did sort of you know, warn that this was a risk. But on the other hand, the Finnish president, Saul Ninistu, had, had received a confirmation from Erdogan over the phone, according to the Finnish president, that he would approve of the application. And the Swedish foreign minister had also received a similar reassurance from her, her Turkish counterpart, Mevlut Cavusoglu. So one would have to believe that those re- reassurances were inaccurate or in order to, to sort of predict this uh, happening. So I think I would say we were prepared that it might happen, but we obviously didn't, didn't uh, expect it to drag out uh, this long, I think. And how has this debate over NATO membership and Turkey's role in that question, how has that affected or changed how Swedish society considers this Turkey origin minority you know, in the public conversation, what dynamics can you observe? What direction is that conversation taking? It's a good question. It's there, I don't think there's a, a really easy answer to, to it, though. I mean, this has been a sort of a wake-up call for Sweden. Swedes consider uh, have long considered themselves as sort of the moral conscience of the world, if you will. We're a small country uh, far up north, and uh, our main contribution tends to, to international relations tends to be offering, uh, you know, our good offices to to for mediation or uh, supporting international organizations, international law, and providing generous foreign aid, as well as opening our borders to to asylum seekers seeking repression. That's sort of the Swedish self image. And now all of a sudden, there's a Swedish national security interest at stake. The the invasion of Ukraine was a a wake-up call in Sweden. 
And we have now been faced with the kind of realpolitik uh, on a scale that, that I think few Swedes, including Swedish policymakers, to be frank, weren't really and hadn't, aren't really prepared for. So that's been a challenge. And, and for Swedish society, I think this also, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated issue because on the one hand, the government wants to open up a new leaf in relations with Turkey. The government is really sort of serious that they uh, are now taking Turkish concerns to heart. Turkey is, as, as I think I'm sure most of your listeners are well aware, has raised a number of concerns uh, regarding the presence of, of terrorist organizations in, Tur- in Sweden, as, as Turkey sees it. And the Swedish government is hoping to to turn a new leaf and, and establish much better relations with Ankara. But at the same time, the way that Turkey has handled this issue, uh, you know, in quite a belligerent fashion, one could say, also means that to many just ordinary Swedes, Turkey has fallen in their eyes, if you will. I think Turkey's stocks have fallen. Now, to the extent to which it affects the Turkish origin community here is a little hard to say, because there's a complication also that the Kurdish community in Sweden is quite concerned about the negotiations that Sweden is now having with with Turkey. And they're worried that the the Kurds will, that they will be sort of the sacrificial lamb, if you will, that uh, Kurds will be extradited to Turkey and that Sweden will cut all ties with Syrian Kurds. And we've seen also several instances where Kurdish organizations have demonstrated projecting PKK flags and uh, doing other things to, to essentially not just protest, but also provoke Erdogan. And uh, I, I think some Swedes have, have reacted angrily at that also. I think this might be a left-right divide in Sweden. Uh, I hear more critical comments from, from the far right on the spectrum in Sweden. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a turbulent time for, I think, everybody involved due to this issue. From afar, you could imagine how the far right in Sweden might view this issue as evidence really of how you know, Sweden's fate has been taken away from, quote, real Swedes. Is that a line that we're seeing emerge? Is that how things are talked about? No, I think that's right. I mean, just frankly, judging by comments that I hear on, uh, I get on social media <laughs> from uh, Swedes who clearly have a uh, right-wing political orientation, Yes, I mean, they're anti-immigrants and, uh, you know, you, you'll hear some comments like send, send all the Kurds back and so on. So I think we, we have an issue in Sweden where we've also made a big U-turn when it comes to migration policy. Sweden has held, had a very generous migration policy for many decades and have, has received a large number of, of migrants. The Turkish community is just one community of many. And after the refugee crisis of 2015-16, that that changed. That was quite a shock for Sweden. And the then Social Democratic and Green government begun not shutting our borders, but definitely tightening our immigration policy. And and we now have a center right to conservative government, which is supported by uh, the Sweden Democrats, a party with roots in the Swedish racist nationalist movement. And the Sweden Democrats don't have any ministerial posts, but they actually sit in the government offices and their policies on migration and crime, etc., are quite influential uh, on this government. 
So there's a, a tougher climate, I would say, when it comes to issues of migration and violent crime and so on. And this NATO issue and, and the, the role of, of Kurds protesting it, I think, also you know, plays into that. And on the Turkish side, I learned from the book that this village Kulu in Konya, where many of the Turkey origin migrants in Sweden came from uh, initially in that first wave in 1967, there's actually a park in Kulu named after the late Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palm. Just wondered as I was reading the book, you know, is there any idea of whether the name of that park is going to be changed as a result of this recent tension, or is that like pure mi- micro politics that uh, we don't know <laughs> anything about yet? What? I mean, place names matter. So you know, one can imagine that. I don't think the crisis between Sweden and Turkey are, are is deep enough. Uh, and I think also that so I haven't heard any such plans. But uh, you know, then we had the these tragic and hor- horrific earthquakes uh, in in Turkey as well. And and Sweden holding the presidency of the European Union helped coordinate EU response to the earthquake. And Sweden bilaterally also, like many other EU countries. Uh, provided a lot of aid. So I think Sweden has uh, donated 10 million euros and and, uh, shipped a lot of uh, tents and other equipment, uh, including uh, rescue teams to to, to Turkey. And that mirroring the the instance, the famed instance of earthquake diplomacy after the 1999 earthquakes in Izmit and then in Athens that helped sort of warm up relations between Greece and Turkey. I I think that that did do something to, to stave off the real deep crisis that we saw in Turkey-Swedish relations um, in uh, January. So now talks between Sweden and Turkey have been paused for uh, a month and they resumed earlier this month after just a, a period of cool down. And uh, I think that was uh, you know beneficial for, for the NATO talks in, in, in particular. So I hope we won't get to the point where the park, Ulf Palme Park, will be renamed. And what about looking forward? Finland's NATO membership has now got the green light from Turkey and Sweden's obviously has not. It's been postponed, those talks, as you say. And it looks like the whole issue really has been postponed until after the election, really. And then we'll see what happens. You know, what's your reading of the situation? What's the latest debate in Sweden? Is there an expectation that things will progress after the election? Obviously, the question of what the result is going to be is going to weigh quite heavily on those debates. But just project forward and and try and speculate about how you think this issue is going to develop in the coming months. Well, I mean, it's incredibly risky to do so. <laughs> You're asking me, William, to do something impossible. Uh, but today, the Swedish parliament voted in favor, formally in favor of NATO accession, so that uh, when and if Turkey and Hungary were to ratify the Swedish accession, we would be able to join swiftly. Yeah, no, I think that your assumption is probably accurate, that everyone is unlikely to do something before the elections. I think, you know, I, you know, one got that sense already uh, late last year. But um, then there were people who, who were saying, uh, you know, Turks who, who had connections in the foreign ministry said, told me, no, you know, if there are things are moving, it might happen sooner than you think. So, uh, you know, all the focus in Turkey right now is a on, on the elections and on, on, on rebuilding after the, the, the horrible earthquakes. The question is, you know, would Erdogan benefit from from either having a renewed fight with Sweden? You know, that was my interpretation that of the many reasons why he chose to not ratify. 
I think it, you know, the PKK issue is, as you know, a very is an important issue to many Turks, and it's uh, therefore one thing that plays well in domestic politics. I don't know, you know, one, one could theoretically could have imagined that the uh, diplomatic pressures from other NATO members might be tougher, and that he might uh, at some point find that he would benefit more uh, from ratification and claiming that he had gained concessions from Sweden, and that that would be a reason why he might ratify before the elections. But yeah, no, I don't think that that is very likely. It is possible still, but but not very likely. So I think. In Sweden now, there's a bit of a, a respite. You know, people have been been almost hysterically <laughs> focused on this issue, even though the urgency, I should say, the urgency that we felt after the invasion of Ukraine or expanded war in Ukraine February last year, that urgency has been reduced because you know the fortunes of, of Russian troops and forces in, in Ukraine, and uh, I mean the very forces that used to be posted on on. Russia's Western Front, uh, and therefore sort of pointing our direction, they have been decimated in in Ukraine. So we're aware now that Russia constitutes a long-term threat, but it will take some time before they are able to reconstitute their forces and constitute a real threat. So that means that uh, you know it's it's less urgent than it was before. But my guess is that you know everything depends on the Turkish elections and the outcome of the elections. You know it looks like the the opposition has a lead in the polls, but you know polls are are, are notoriously uncertain. And Erdogan has held power for twenty years. He holds all the levers of power, and he uh, you know has a firm grip on important institutions such as the the Yüksek Seçim Kurulu, the the high the election authority, as well as the courts, uh, who might determine any cases surrounding the election. So you know, I would still bet actually on the opposition right now, but I would not count Erdogan out uh, at all. If there's an opposition victory, you know, we heard the CHP's foreign policy uh, spokesperson recently give an interview to Politico, I think it was, where he stated that they would be uh, favorable, look favorably on, on ratifying, ratifying Swedish uh, accession. So I think that if there's an opposition victory, then then that would be beneficial for the Swedish NATO application. If Erdogan remains in power, then it's a little bit more unclear. I think then Erdogan will most likely demand to see concrete results from the various legislative changes that Sweden has made. And we haven't talked about much about it, but uh, but Sweden has done a lot to accommodate the Turkish concerns. And it's something that, that you know, there are a lot of internal Swedish critics uh, of this. But some of these changes take time. So the legislative changes regarding uh, stricter anti-terrorism laws and so on, they need to be actually implemented by police and prosecutors. And, and that could take months or, or perhaps even years if we include uh, appeals. So... If Erdogan stays, I, I think, well, you know, the, the Vilnius summit, which is the next NATO, the big NATO summit in on 11th to 12th of July, I think that looks very tight. And we might look uh, to join in that case uh, by the next uh, next summer's uh, NATO meeting, which will be held in the U.S. But then there's also the, the, you know, the question of, of turbulence and uncertainty regarding the outcome of the elections. As I've mentioned you know, before, it's, there's a lot at stake for Erdogan. Um, so even if the opposition were to win, it's unclear to me whether he would peacefully just hand over the keys to, to the Sarai, to Kılıçdaroğlu.
Yeah, so there are scenarios one, one can imagine where there's a lot of unclear, unclarity and, and turbulence following the elections. And um, in that case, the, the, the Swedish NATO application won't be first on, on many people's minds, but it, it would likely be delayed in that case. That was Paul Levine. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 191. And if that interview piqued your interest, you can buy his book at a 35% discount if you join as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Indeed, all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members also get transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Remember, we need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Very important, of course, in the current election campaign. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.